Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David a son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers because they did not recognize him or understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to your fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is God's word. There you go. Well done. Well, it is the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap-happiest season of all. The kids will be jingle-belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It is the most wonderful time season of the year. With those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings, when friends come to call, it's the hap-happiest season of all. There'll be parties of hosting, marshmallows for toasting, caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories, tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing, and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the year. I guarantee every single person in this room has heard that song sometime in the last three weeks. You ask Alexa to play Christmas music, I know from experience that's the first song she's going to play. It was written in 1963, remains an iconic Christmas holiday classic to this day, streamed across the nations on millions of devices in millions of homes. Written by Edward Pola, composed by George Weil. Fun fact, I never heard of George Weil before this, but this guy was good. You know what else he wrote? 
the Gilligan's Island theme song. Anything that guy touched was gold, right? Uh, that's for Stephen, too. I know he'll appreciate that. Um, well, they wrote it for a Christmas album sung by the crooner of the day. His name was Andy Williams. He was given the name Mr. Christmas after this song was released. It is so iconic and sentimental because it seems to encapture the classic American traditions of our civilization. We ride through Forest City. We see the Christmas lights. Santa is at the mall talking to the kids. The Salvation Army person is ringing the bell in front of Walmart. We have dozens of Christmas parties to attend with hot chocolate, marshmallows, and mistletoe. All of these things are well and good. You probably think I'm going to say now that they're all bad. I'm not going to say that. Uh, but what I do want to point out is most of American civilization has no idea why we're doing any of this. Right? Um, we see a few manger scenes scattered throughout uh, the town. All, all, all the, the fancy churches have a, a big manger scene out in the front yard, right? Um, and we say Jesus is the reason for the season. But even that is really not enough to explain why we're doing the things that we're doing. Why does a baby in a manger create the hap happiest season of all? Well-meaning Christians will highlight the baby in the manger, but tend to disassociate the nativity from the wider context of God's story. I think Christians and non-Christians alike miss the point of Christmas because they don't know the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, it's just another baby. And a really sad situation, right? But the wise men did not come searching for Jesus because a random baby was born, but because a prophecy was spoken of old that a king would be born in Bethlehem. And Herod was not threatened because another baby was born, but because a prophecy was being fulfilled which said the government would be upon his shoulders. And the increase of his government or his kingdom would know no end. Mary did not rejoice at the miraculous news that she had received a child from the Holy Spirit just because she wanted a baby. She rejoiced, singing in Luke chapter 1, verse 54, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Christmas without the Old Testament is just some stinky sheep and oxen an ordinary baby like all other babies. But the Old Testament crowns this baby as king. The Old Testament gives this baby a name whose name is Messiah, the Christ. The Old Testament calls him the only begotten son of God. Now, here is a reason for us to be of good cheer and to realize why this season is so happy. This is our first recorded sermon of the uh, Adopted apostle, we'll see, uh, Paul. Um, after a year or more, Paul and Barnabas move on from one Antioch to another. There's about three Antiochs in Scripture. So the Antioch we're looking at today is not the same one that we saw a couple weeks ago. Uh, this is a different one in Pisidia. Uh, Jack taught first 12 verses of this chapter last week showing this plan of evangelists being sent by the Holy Spirit to go to Salamis and to proclaim God's word. And that's where they met the false prophet, Elimus. They blinded the guy, and the proconsul saw it and was astonished at the teaching of the Lord and what happened there. And there was a trail of disciples left all among the north coast 
uh, of these evangelists as they were sharing the gospel in town to town. And it's not clear how long they were in each place. Some longer and some shorter, but it seems like their goal in all place was to make a few disciples, get a local church going, teach them sound doctrine, and move on. After their time was up in Salamis, the Holy Spirit evidently led them further north along the coastlands to Pisidia. There was a synagogue service that the Lord had uh, appointed for them to attend, as we'll see this morning. And in that service, Paul gets up and basically preaches the entire Old Testament. Aren't you glad I'm not doing that this morning? Um, But that's what he does to show them that Jesus came and God kept his promise. That's our points today. God keeps his promises. God sent his son. God keeps his promises. God sent his son. Starting in verse 13, setting the scene for us, Paul is blossoming as a leader. It seems like, you know, Barnabas is not even named at the beginning. We know he's there. It just says Paul and his companions. They set sail for Paphos and to Perga and Pamphylia, um, and then they split up. It tells us that John decided to return to Jerusalem. It doesn't tell us why. Uh, Jack gave us a little foreshadow of that last week. Um, Maybe he just wanted to go and give a report to the other apostles in the church in Jerusalem like Peter had done. Uh, Or maybe there was something creeping under the surface. We know that there is eventually a disagreement among them about John. And uh, Barnabas and uh, Paul seeing some disagreement about his involvement there. But either way, the Lord moved John on and the Lord kept Barnabas and Paul on the mission. And he was orchestrating all of this behind the scenes. And it's good to just point out at the beginning of this passage to remind you that God's plan for fulfilling the Great Commission is you guys. The God's, God's plan for fulfilling the Great Commission is people. He says, I'm going to put these people here, I'm going to put these people here, I'm going to put these people here, I'm going to put these people here. They're going to tell people about Jesus, and people are going to get saved. That, that, that's God's strategy, right? So John Mark left. They remained. Why? We don't know. Why are you in Rutherford County? You are here at a place at a time to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to share the same good news of great joy that the angels brought. So wherever the Lord puts you, that's where he wants you this Christmas. Look for the divine appointments where you are each day. In this day, it was a Sabbath day, which means what's happening on the Sabbath? The synagogue's getting together. They're having church. Good day for church, right? And this gives us a glimpse into Paul's mission strategy. His plan was basically to go to every town with a synagogue and start there and just cause a scene. <laughs> um, he, he, he goes to the pulpit and he makes a mess. His pattern was to go to the synagogue, go to the Jews on the Sabbath day, and just blindside them with a Jesus juke. Uh, sometimes that was really effective, like today. Other times it would not be, and he would eventually turn to the Gentiles to be his primary mission field. But for now, let's pretend it's Christmas Day. It is Christmas Day. We don't have to pretend. And we're having church, and ragtag, ragtag team of people come and sit on the back pew, and uh, they want to take over the service. I'm a nice guy, but chances are I'm not going to let that happen. Right? which shows the miracle of God that was about to take place, that these strangers showed up, though they were Jews, in the synagogue, and they don't just stand up and intervene. They were invited to share. They read the scripture reading, the law and the prophets, and they said, hey, you guys in the back, y'all got anything to add? Anything, any, any word of encouragement that you might share? 
for our synagogue? Y'all think Paul had anything to say? I love it. The text says Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, right? He was a charismatic preacher. He, he wasn't just about to share a testimony. He was about to preach, right? And so he gets up. And then in verses 17 through 25, Paul, like I said, basically preaches the whole Old Testament. Do you remember any other preachers in the book of Acts who basically preached the whole Old Testament recently? Stephen, Stephen, where do you think Paul learned that? Paul had learned how to share the gospel with Jews from the church's first martyr, the man that he watched die, being stoned to death, as he preached the gospel starting with Abraham. What a redemptive moment. Now, Paul didn't just preach this way because that's how Stephen did it. He did it this way because it's just the way it works. It's true, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Jesus said himself, Matthew chapter 5, all of it was about me. If you had seen it, you would have seen me, right? And here was a synagogue reading it week in and week out, over and over and over again, and they had just missed him. And Paul was one of them just a few years ago. So the most important thing to point out here in this verses, we'll move fast, is just the pronoun he. He. The Lord. Verse 17. He, God, chose our fathers. He puts them in the same category. He's like, I'm one of you. I missed it too. God chose us. God chose Abraham. Of all the people on the face of the earth, he said, Abram, you moon worshiper, you're going to follow me, and I'm going to give you offspring as many as the stars of the sky, the sands of the sea. The Lord started all of this. Verse 17 again, he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. God did it when they were slaves in Egypt. Poor um, slaves thriving and multiplying in the harsh environment of Egypt. How did that happen? Because God made them multiply and thrive. So much so that it made Pharaoh nervous. They're outnumbering the Egyptians. God protected them in Egypt and grew them in Egypt. Verse 17 still, God led them out of Egypt with an uplifted arm. God promised to do all this back in Genesis to Abraham, that his people, his sons, his offspring, would have a little bit of a 400-year hiatus, but the Lord would deliver them again. And they were slaves for 400 years, and then God said to Moses, go tell him, let my people go. God did it. And God didn't just do it, he did it with an uplifted arm which means there was Egyptian chariots at the bottom of the ocean. God did it victoriously with a mighty arm. Verse 18, God put up with them. I love that phrase. God put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years. It literally means he bore with them. He stayed with them. He didn't forget them or leave them on their own. He put up with them in the wilderness. He took care of them. Their sandals never wore from their feet. They always had food to eat and water to drink, even if it came from rocks. Verse 19, God destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. God did it. That means there were wars, there was fighting, there was bloodshed, physical people thrusting physical swords, yet God gets the credit for any wicked nation that was destroyed during that time. Nations rage. God is the one that makes them fall, and he does it for his own plans, his own purposes, and for the good of his chosen Verse 19, again, God gave them their land as an inheritance. He said he would do it. He did it. Even through the whining and the rebellion and all those that were held back, God, not all of them got to go, right? 
but God still kept his promise to give them this land. After 450 years, after slavery, after homelessness, after wars, God did it. Verse 20, God gave them judges. No judge was ever chosen arbitrarily during the time of the judges. From Samson, a weird dude, to Deborah, right? The Lord gave them the judges, not the people. God gave them judges. Then verse 21, God gave them their first king. They arrogantly and foolishly wanted a king for themselves to sort of mirror the other nations, and God used it anyway. He had a plan to use this earthly king to foreshadow the coming of his perfect king centuries later through this royal offspring, son of David. So first they started with Saul, which we know how things went with him. God removed him. Verse 22, God did it. God said, no more Saul. Here's David. God did that. God is sovereign over every throne. Through the dramatic saga of Saul versus David and all the rigmarole in the Samuel books, God had a plan to raise up a king of the son of Jesse, a root from dry ground, a man after God's own heart who would do his will. And finally, verse 23, the mic drop, completing the whole Old Testament. Of this man's offspring, God has brought Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. As he promised. God has been the enactor of all these great events in Israel's history. And now at the climax, seeing all his promises fulfilled again and again and again and again and again, he says, look, look. God did what he said he was going to do. God promised a Savior. He came, he died, he rose. Isaiah 7, have you not read? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruits, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah 53. That's maybe the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament. Isaiah 53. What we already read this morning, Jay read. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He did it. He did it. This was prophesied down to the very last prophet. Who was the very last prophet, by the way? John the Baptist. Kind of a trick question, right? John the Baptist was the last prophet. He said, I baptize you with water, but the one coming is greater than me. Don't get us mixed up. He's already on the earth. He's already been born. Our mama's been talking. I remember him in the womb while I was in the wilderness, right? His sandals are already walking, and I'm not worthy to untie them. Don't miss him. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I am not the Messiah. Keep your eyes peeled. He's here. You know what Christmas means? Christmas means that God doesn't break promises. God has never, ever broken a promise. Never. That's like the theme of the entire Old Testament and the fulfillment of the New Testament in Jesus. You know, I might give you my word to say I'm going to do something, but I don't have a perfect track record, which means there's a chance I may not do that thing. God has a perfect track record. 
He has never, ever let anyone down, ever. If you think that God has not come through for you, you'd be the first person he ever broke a promise to. God literally sent his son. Will he not now freely give us all things? He's more trustworthy than we could ever imagine. He's not a far-off genie who toys with our emotions and dangles our happiness in front of our noses. He's the God who raises and destroys kings and kingdoms. He's the God who chooses a people for himself. He's the God who miraculously protects his children through wilderness wanderings, even when it seems painful to us. He's the God who came down to earth himself so that the soul, for the first time, could feel its worth. He's the God that's so near to us, so trustworthy, that he literally crushed his own son on the cross in order to keep his word and make us his children. He keeps his promises. That's not a new idea, but that is what I have for you this morning. God will keep his word. And today of all days, we should be keenly aware of that. It might take 450 years. There might be some pretty hard nights, but God will do what he says he will do. He even sent his son. Point number two, God sent his son. Paul's just getting started here. I wish we had more time to, to dive in. And we're not going to finish his sermon, by the way. So we'll, we'll get the rest of Paul's sermon next week. But Paul knows who he's talking to. And he, he teaches, remember, this sermon is very different from Peter's, right? Peter's in front of the Sanhedrin and is like, you guys literally put the nails in his wrists. He's very accusatory. Y'all killed him. God raised him up, you know. And um, here in this Antioch, in this synagogue, Paul's a little bit more relatable. He's like, these were our fathers. I missed the promise too. I, I want you to see what I have seen. And these guys weren't actually there. Some of them may not have even known about the crucifixion. Most of them probably did. Um, but as Jews, here are these people in Antioch just waiting for the Messiah. So Paul has some good news for them. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. He came, he lived a sinless life, he died, he buried, he rose again. The message of salvation has come. How did it come? Let, let me explain, he says. They did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets. You read them, you read them today, he said. Week in and week out, you read the law and the prophets. But the rulers in Jerusalem, when Jesus arrived, myself included, we totally missed it. We missed it. And as God would have it, we fulfilled those prophecies by killing him. Which is the only way it really could have happened, right? It's kind of amazing to think about. The only way the prophecy of Jesus being despised and rejected by men was for him to be despised and rejected by men. They said he's not the Messiah. That's what the Bible said would happen, right? This is the only way it could have happened. It's a, a, a miraculous phrase, really, that, that they fulfilled the prophecies by condemning him. That's, like, we could talk a lot about that, right? They were oblivious to the fact that they were actually assisting the Lord in crushing his son for the iniquity of us all. That's the only way it could have happened. They found in him no guilt worthy of death, Isaiah 53. They asked Pilate to execute him, so they continued to fulfill all the prophecies, Paul says, down to the cross. They took him down after he was dead, laid him in a tomb, and then what does he say? Who? God. He raised him from the dead. Same God that did all that stuff in the Old Testament. 
God has raised Jesus from the dead. He did it. God was behind it all. And we saw him. He was alive for many days. He testified, risen to hundreds of people. And we saw him and we've become his witnesses. He called us his witnesses. That's why we're here to tell you the good news about Jesus, that God has kept his promises. He told us to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Here we are. Receive it. That's why we're here. This is the message of salvation. And this is still our message of salvation. Our message has not changed. Doesn't this tell us so much about how preachers ought to preach? Um, The good news is that God has kept his promise. The angels proclaimed in Luke chapter 2, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy this day that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That word good news, if you're a Greek nerd, is euangelion, where we get our word evangelism, evangelical. The angels knew it. Paul knew it. The folks in Antioch were about to find out. Good news. Do you know the good news? It's one thing to know about the good news, right? I'm sure all y'all in this room have heard the Christmas story like a billion times, right? You have, mo- yeah, you have some of that memorized. You don't know the other parts of the Bible, but like because of all the books we've read growing up and we read it on Christmas and do all the things, we've heard it. But do you like know it? Know it. Hell is full of millions of people who saw nativity scenes and knew the Christmas story. The difference is that some of us know Jesus as the baby in the manger born in Bethlehem and some angels saying happy birthday when he got there. But believers know him as Lord and Savior. Which is he to you? I invite you this day, if you don't know Jesus as Lord, you know, we, we preach the message every week. Paul's going to give his appeal next week to these people in the synagogue. I give mine today. The message is simple. He died, he rose again to take your sin and trade it out for his righteousness so you can stand before God as though you've never sinned a day in your life. Knowing about Jesus does not get you to heaven or get you out of hell. But having Jesus as Lord and Savior as master, as friend, he came to Israel as a what? Savior. Savior. So cry out to him. He loves to save. This is why he came. This is what makes the good news good news. So believe on Jesus today. Well, finally, Paul opens his Bible at the end here, and he opens to several verses. We're just going to hit the first one. Can you imagine the scene? As Paul is standing up in front of all these strangers in Antioch with his motioning hands and his ragtime, rag, ragtag people behind him, his companions, you probably could have heard a pin drop. Paul says, take those scrolls out of the back of your pews and turn to Psalm number 2. He says, I want you to notice verse 7 in Psalm number 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, begotten has to be the, like the number one most Christian-y, Christian Bible word that we use. We have no idea what it means, right? The begotten son. 
before I try to answer that, let me ask another question. When did the Father beget Jesus? He says, today I have begotten you. When did the Father beget Jesus? And I think the con- context of Psalm 2 helps us answer that question. I think it was a last snow day last year we had Psalm 2 for a Christmas, or it was around Christmas, I don't remember. Um, but it's a political poem. It shows that there are all these kings on the earth, but Jesus is the one true king, and unless they kiss the sun, all these other kings can rage all they want, but they will perish in his way. Jesus is Lord. He is the one true king. All other kings are under the thumb of the Lord. In the middle of that psalm, it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And beget can literally mean to be born, but there's obviously figurative poetic language in Psalm number 2, right? I don't think it means to literally be born. So in a figurative sense, the word begotten means to raise up, to exalt, to give inheritance to, to put them on a throne. So we know Jesus has always existed. Second person of the Trinity, first day on earth was not his first day in existence. God did not create the Son. He's always been. He was present in creation. Hebrews tells us that. So we know this can't be talking about his birth. So again, when did the Father beget the Son? On the third day. On the third day. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, in many days, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, after he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say? This is Hebrews 1. Quoting what? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that day in the field, when the skies were dark and then were lit up with a multitude of angels singing, glory to God in the highest, good news of great joy. They were rejoicing that God came to earth, but even more so, they were rejoicing in what was going to happen. This baby in lowly estate was going to be crowned as the greatest, most beautiful, glorious, begotten Son of God at the right hand of the Father. The promise to the Father is fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. And he's alive 2,000 years later. He is the begotten, glorious, royal Prince of God. He's been highly exalted and he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's the begotten. So what does this mean for us? If God kept his promise to raise Jesus from the dead, he's going to raise you from the dead. Jesus rules and reigns as the prince of peace. They said he brings peace and goodwill to those with whom he is pleased. We as his children are uh, heirs of eternal life, of the peace and the goodwill of God. We will too rise from the dead so we can be at peace. 
Here is a word of encouragement for the synagogue in Antioch. Here is a word of encouragement for the church in Spindale 2,000 years later. The message of salvation has come. Jesus is king, and the Father will continue to keep his promises until everything is made new. He rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the wonders or the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Why is it the hap happiest season of all? Because God has begotten his son. And he is king and Lord of all. I hope you know him today, specifically as Lord. If you don't, please stick around. It'll be the best Christmas present you could possibly receive. Confess your sins and know him as the begotten son. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.